All right, good evening, everybody. Tonight we'll be in uh, 2 Corinthians 7, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. 2 Corinthians 7. And we'll pray and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight and our opportunity to sing praises to you, to let the kids get their time with you and to learn of you and to hang out together. And um, we just pray that you bless your word, both in this room and in the Sunday school rooms out there, that you bless the teachers as they share um, that the kids would be receptive and can receive it. And we say, pray the same for ourselves. Help us to hear what you have for us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week was chapter 6, and we went over the first verse of chapter 7, um, but we need to revisit that, I believe, tonight, because it's one of the most important verses in the Bible. I think it defines, and it's a litmus test um, for a godly church in our, in our world. We were talking, Jenny and I were talking, we have our, she has tea and I have my energy drink in the morning, and that is our uh, information download time and, and fellowship time and hangout time and talk about God time. And um, we were talking about how, what is it about carrying the cross that is so bothersome to, to some? And uh, many people are willing to come to the foot of the cross and love to stay at the foot of the cross but they never stand up and carry the cross. That's a difficult portion for them to, to swallow, to take into their lives. Um, not that everybody doesn't carry their cross, but it is a difficult transition to get off your knees, receive that forgiveness, but then to go on and carry on um, with carrying your cross. And I think it came up in our conversation because it seems like every time we teach or we come to the Word of God, it's a little, it's a little sorrowful, you know? And uh, I was checking myself. I bounced myself off of her. She checks me, you know. Uh, and, and, you know, am, am, I, am I in a place that brings the teaching across in such a way that everybody leaves going, oh, man, another, you know, kind of thing? Because you don't want to be that way. You don't want your personal feelings to come across. And we, as we discussed it and worked our way through it, it is that. When Paul says in his life, I mean, he was the most in my opinion, godly man walking the earth uh, as a born-again believer, he went through a lot. And he went through a lot because he was a godly man walking as a believer in this world. The world doesn't change once we come to the cross. Once we kneel at the foot of the cross, we get forgiveness. But like Paul says, he carries on the sufferings of Christ. Paul, Paul carried on in his life what Jesus experienced in his three and a half years, in, te- in fact, his entire life, of ministry. And it isn't that it's sorrowful walk, it's just that is the reality of walking in the spirit in a godless world or in an antichrist world. You're you're going to encounter difficulties. And so it isn't that we're constantly and can't find a positive encouraging message. It's just this is it. This is the walk. Um, anything less is to fool yourself or to ignore the very fact that this verse 1 of chapter 7 exists, okay? So here it is, verse 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's what it means to carry your cross, Of course, we receive forgiveness, and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness at the foot of the cross, for sure. But Paul then, is he speaking to unbelievers or believers in this letter? He's speaking to believers. 
And this is the, the next step, the next logical conclusion is chapter 7, verse 1 of the believers to stand up at the foot of the cross and begin to carry that cross now and to begin to cleanse yourself of the filthiness of the flesh and the spirit. Now, I think we look at it maybe wrong because if we come to God's word and we feel like it's always a downer, we're always guilty, we're never going to succeed, we're always losers, and God keeps kicking me to the dirt every time I open the word of God, I think we're reading it wrong. It would be like saying, I admitted myself to the hospital, what more do you want? Well, we want to make you better. We want to give you treatment. We want you to walk out healthy. We want to, we want to fix what's broken. We don't want to just diagnose. We don't just want to put a gown on you that's embarrassing to wear. We want to, we want to get healed. So there's a process. And so when God asks us, and Paul commands us here, cleanse yourself from filthiness, he's not doing it because well, he wants you to have a miserable life and not have any fun. He's saying, no, it's, that's exactly what brought you into this place, the hospital. That's exactly what brought you to the foot of the cross is the filthiness of the spirit and the filthiness of the flesh. That's what brought you to the place of hopelessness. And God doesn't want us to live there anymore. To, to walk to the foot of the cross and say, cleanse me, now let me live in it, would be mean. It would be, it would be cruel for God not to give us this verse. And I think, personally, that this is a litmus test for a godly church. I think this is what tells us what a godly church is and what it isn't. If a godly church continues to encourage its believers, encourage those who are born again to cleanse themselves from filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit, that's normal. That's right. That's, that's healing. That's a fulfilled life. That's hope. That's love. That's, that's a bright face instead of a downcast spirit. The only reason we'd be downcast is if we really loved our sins still, which we don't, of course. So he calls us to cleanse ourselves and calls the Corinthian church. Believers, cleanse yourself. Of course, Jesus does the cleansing, but there is some personal responsibility to not live in those places and to not live in those things and to change our minds about things. What are these promises that he said this is there for? Because of the promises, we want to cleanse ourselves. What promises? Well, it's in 2 Corinthians 6, 17 is our first promise. Wherefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. I want to be received by God. I want to be in fellowship with him. Therefore, I want to come out from among them. I want to be, I want to be sanctified. That sanctification process. Setting yourself apart, deciding to set yourself apart from the world. The second promise is in 2 Corinthians 6, 18, the very next verse. And will be a father unto you. I'll receive you and be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and my daughters, says the Almighty. I'm going to receive you, and you're going to be my sons and daughters. You're going to look like me. You're going to look like you're part of the family. You know families look alike. The Dirks have certain characteristics, you know. The McKinney's have certain characteristics. You all do. You have certain things that we look like. Well, for our Father in heaven is our new Father. We want to have those characteristics in our life. We want to have those attributes. Those are the things we admired about him. When we were distant, separated from Jesus, what drew people to Jesus? Oh, he's so gracious and merciful and forgiving and loving, and he just understands me, you know. We want those things. Well, in order to have those things, that's why Paul says, you need to cleanse yourself from filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit, perfecting in holiness in the fear of God. It makes us like him. So it's not a ho-hum, 
oh man, you know, what a bummer to come to church. It's a, oh, oh, it's the next step. Having a, an abundant life. One of the things he says here in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's the verse I hold on to the most. Well, I'm cleansed from all unrighteousness. What do you mean, Paul? I need to cleanse myself from filthiness and all. Well, there's an ongoing process. It's like dusting in your house, right? I mean, you do the cleaning, right? This seems to keep coming, right? There's more dust. It keeps collecting. And there's some maintenance, you know? Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, and Peter says, no, 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 don't wash my feet. He goes, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. He goes, then wash my whole body. And Peter, hey, I don't need to wash the whole body. You've already been washed. We're just doing some maintenance here. You know? See, I don't come to the cross and say, God, forgive me for my sins once. I mean, I do, and that happens. But there are daily moments where I come to the Lord, if not moment by moment, that I say, God, I'm sorry. There's just that maintenance. There's just that constant acknowledgement that there goes my flesh again, Lord. I'm acknowledging it before you. I'm accepting the forgiveness that's already offered to me. I know there's no works I have to do or hoops to jump through, but I'm acknowledging it out loud in my mind and between you and me. I saw it too. You know, there's that maintenance that goes on. Very important. Two kinds of filthiness he describes, the filthiness of the flesh and the filthiness of the spirit. Let me try to explain both of those. Filthiness of the flesh would be like harlots, tax collectors. We know what those guys are like, right? That's the outward stuff. That's the, that's the obvious things that you see. But there was also a group that did the filthiness of the spirit. Those were the Pharisees. They were the religious. They didn't do the things the harlots were doing. They didn't do the things the tax collectors were doing. They thought they were bad. They didn't realize it, that in their heart, they were as sick, if not dying more so than the others. Some of the things that can show us show up as these things, the filthiness of the spirit, pride is as disgusting as a harlot's job in our life. Legalism, self-focus, self-righteousness, bitterness, hatred. One of those things you've got to cleanse yourself from. That's something that's constantly happening. I don't know that I always have to keep myself from going to the street corner and soliciting, you know, for money. That's easy. I don't walk out to the Maryville Square and do those sort of things, but hatred, sometimes it comes in. Bitterness, a little bit, you know. These are filthiness of the spirit that can creep into our lives. That God, Paul says, you got to cleanse yourself of that. you got to work on that. you got to let that be washed continually and let God do his work in your life. Um, I see that the opposite happening. I told Jenny before I came up here, I said, you know, I've kind of got a, I had a headache all day and I don't know why, but you know, no big deal, pity. But uh, <laughs> I got, I had two versions of tonight's teaching. I said, there's the, there's the, just the encouraging version and let's just get through the night kind of version. Cause I have those in the back pocket once in a while. And then there's the teach it like it is. And Jenny looks at me, she goes, oh yeah, by all means, water it down. You know, <laughs> said, okay, I got it. He's a good wife. We don't want to do that. There's joy in the truth. There's change in the truth. That's what I want. I mean, who wants to show up here and leave going, you know, I don't know. I, I don't want to make fun of it, but you could almost leave and go, you know, I don't know what I heard tonight, but I don't feel bad. 
But are you changed? You know, that's one of the things Aaron prayed was, God, we want to be changed by your word tonight. Well, Paul simply says a very wonderful truth here in this first verse. Cleanse yourself from the filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Be holy for I'm holy, God says. There's more to it. There's more to it than just saying nobody's perfect. I don't know why we say that. I mean, we know that nobody's perfect, right? But do we say that out loud to make ourselves feel good about our moral failings? Make ourselves feel justified in the fact that we didn't even try today? You know, well, no one's perfect. Well, yeah. <laughs> that doesn't mean we want to stay there. I don't want to be the same person as I was before I came to the foot of the cross. I don't want to be that person anymore. I want to be the person he created me to be. You know, that's all Paul's trying to say. Be changed. It seems like in the church, and I wrote this down so I don't forget, it has become more tolerable to commit sin than to judge sin. I'll say that again. In the church, it has become more tolerable to commit sin than to judge sin. To hear someone say that something is sin in the church is almost a greater sin than the sin itself, is the idea. I don't know where we came to that. If we forget that this place is a hospital, that sin is a disease, then we forget the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is for healing from the cancer that's killing us, the disease that's ruining us that brought us to that place of weakness and humbleness where we cried out for a Savior, I need medicine, I need help. To ignore the fact that we've got the disease for the sake of just not acknowledging it and being embarrassed that you've got some sort of sickness is foolish. You'll never get healed. It's not loving to not mention cancer to someone who has cancer. I told you that story in Japan. It's a very common thing in, in the Far East. For the doctor to know the condition of the patient... And to judge for themselves as to whether they're going to tell the patient or not the truth about their sickness or whether they should keep it from them. They will even discuss it with the other family members first. Should we disclose to the patient the illness that they have or should we not? Can you imagine how furious we would be? But we're in America. We know better. Like, I want to know the truth. Like it or not, give it to me straight. Great. I hope that applies spiritually as well. I want to know. We all want to know. Paul says, we got to know. Verse 2. We'll go a lot faster than that. <laughs> that was one of the big stopping points, okay? Open your hearts to us, Paul says. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn. For I've said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am, I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. Now, based off of his first two letters, the, the first letter, Corinthians 1, and the first six chapters, you wouldn't think that he would feel this way about the Corinthian church, but he does. He's just exclaiming in his heart, I wrote this because I love you, not because I don't. I'm not trying to win an argument. I'm not trying to show myself better. I'm not trying to to boost my pride or my reputation by writing these letters. I'm better than you, not at all. I'm doing this because I boast about you and I love you. I have boldness of speech towards you because I love you. One of the most important things we can have is boldness of speech. 
Don't misunderstand it, Paul says. Don't misunderstand my boldness of speech as condemning speech. It's not what it is. You're awfully judgmental. No, it's just kind of loud about sin. Nothing wrong with that. Don't take it so personal. Don't take it as if I don't love you. It's that I, I can't stand the fact that you're hurt, you know? When you notice something about a friend, hey, how long have you been limping like that? Don't notice my limp. No, I was just concerned about you. But don't say it out loud. What's wrong with your limp? Why are you doing that? Well, my hip's been hurting. Well, let's get you to the doctor. As Christian to Christian, as brother and sister to one another, that's how we're supposed to be for another. What's going on? You're usually not like that. You're not so angry. Don't judge me for being angry. You get angry too. (laughs) I know. I know. But this is a little irrational. It's a little out of character for you. Is there something going on? And you talk to him about it. I'm not being bold because I want to show you worse or under me. Because I want to expose something and maybe help. That's all Paul tries to do with this letter. My boldness of speech towards you is because I love you. I'm exceedingly joyful. I'm filled with comfort, he says. Verse 5, for indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. They were exhausted. We were troubled on every side. And it was just one of those times in the ministry where everybody on Paul's team was like, oh, my goodness, you know. When is, when is it going to relent? When is it going to back off? When is the pressure going to be off? They've had enough. They're, they've, they're up, to the, up to here with persecution and tribulations in their life. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. It's like we couldn't escape it. It's one thing to be super confident and bold back to back in the ministry and fighting. But we even have that because inside of all of our hearts, we were fainting. They were pressuring us, and we were, we were collapsing, full of fear. You don't think of Paul that way. He was. He needed, some, he needed some comfort. That's why he says it. I was so comforted. Why did you need comfort? Because we had no strength in us anymore. We were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. Nevertheless, in the midst of all that, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. I want to be a Titus in people's lives. I want us all to be Tituses in people's lives. That we, when we come to them, there's comfort. Not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. This is secondhand comforting. Titus came from the Corinthian church and they said, we received Paul's letter. It was amazing. Oh, we were so stupid. And I'm just, that's not exactly what it says, but that's the idea. And we repent and we're so sorry. And we just pray for Paul and we're, we just want everything right. And Titus is like, no way. I mean, it's not what you expect when you send a letter like that, but this is great. I'm going to go tell Paul. So he shows up and Paul's like, oh, thank goodness, Titus, you're here. You're here. He goes, yeah. And I've got good news. The Corinthians received your letter. Oh, no way. You know, boost upon boost, comfort upon comfort, secondhand comfort even, and he's blessed. Not only by his coming, but also by the consolation in which he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, that I rejoiced even more. (laughs) When Titus came to me and told me you were all crying, I was so encouraged, you know, is what Paul's saying. I think that's hilarious. And he tones it down here. He tries to explain himself. 
He's like, oh, he said you guys were broken. That's great. You know, for even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I mean, nobody wants to write a letter like that. Nobody wants to make anybody feel like that, but it had to be written and you felt the right way about it. So I'm kind of glad that I wrote it and I'm glad that you regretted all of it and I, but I don't re- that you responded that way, but I don't regret it, but I kind of do. And you get, his, you get his heart. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance, turning, changing. That's his focus here. For you were made sorrow, sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Two different kinds of sorrow. There's a godly sorrow that produces change in a believer's life. Or in an unbeliever's life even. Godly sorrow brings repentance. They do something about it. Worldly sorrow brings death brings a person down even further. And we'll talk about an example here in a minute. It says, um, this godly sorrow that he's excited about, um, this um, worldly sorrow that he was concerned might happen, like, I hope the letter isn't received in such a way that they're just mad at me or that there's just broken fellowship or that they feel bad and there's no change and they continue on in their life. I'm hoping for a godly sorrow. That should always be our hope when we talk to people boldly but lovingly about sin. That should always be the hope. I don't want to just make you feel bad about what you're doing. I want, I want you to see the truth in it and be changed. I don't want to be that person anymore. I don't want to do that anymore. Repentance. That's the hope. That's the desire. Um. Okay, sometimes I'll come across a subject in Scripture with you people, okay, and with myself. And we hit a subject that probably would impact 30% of you. And I hesitate sometimes because you never want that to come across in the way that it would be received in such a way that I'm trying to condemn that person all over again, even though they've repented from that past situation. Does that make sense? I know that that's in a lot of people's past, whatever this subject may be. I know that you've repented of it. I know that it's been something you've worked through. But for me to avoid it would be even more wrong because there's prevention that needs to take place. There needs to be education that needs to be brought out. Whatever the subject may be. I'm not even going to point one out. Okay, I will, I will do one example, but I don't think it affects too many of you. <laughs> it, it, it should never come across in such a way that you're being recondemned. And please don't hear it that way ever. Sometimes subjects come up, and please keep in mind, this is a wide audience here, and young people too that haven't experienced this sin or this tragedy in their life. Um. And we're trying to prevent or trying to help them to avoid the mistakes that we've made in the past, you know, or just avoid it altogether by being whatever. I better I'll stop there. It doesn't. It doesn't matter what the subject is. We just want to be careful. 
Now, here's the example. I think about Judas Iscariot. I was thinking about him when we were going over this, because that was a person who definitely had sorrow, right? He, he discovered that he, he learned, he realized that he had betrayed innocent blood for 30 pieces of silver. He gave up Jesus, but his sorrow and his um, um, regret was not godly sorrow. It did lead to death, though, didn't it? What was the kind of death? Suicide. I brought up suicide one time here, and I, it comes up occasionally. And I had to talk about it. And one of the things I, I, I shared that wasn't received by this group, this couple, was that suicide is a very, very selfish act. It's a very selfish act. Now, they had recently had a friend who had committed suicide, and it hit them very hard that morning. And, of course, they wanted to speak with me and talk with me about it and sort of correct me, but whatever, just wanted to see, what do you mean? How could that? And I tried to explain um, suicide or the, the inevitable death of worldly sorrow comes about because godly sorrow was not embraced. See, if I come to a point in my life where God shows something to me that needs to be changed or something, and I respond with godly sorrow, which causes me to change, beautiful things begin to grow in my life. Grace and mercy begin to show up. Joy begins to fill my heart because I've repented and I've received godly sorrow by hearing that about myself. Worldly sorrow will internalize it and cause a person to spiral out of control because I will not do, I will not change, I will not repent, I will, and it brings them to that place where it's the most selfish act you can do is to kill yourself at the expense of everybody else's feelings, okay? That's exactly what happened to Judas Iscariot. It's exactly what took place. What Paul says here, worldly sorrow produces death is exactly what happened. He was riddled with worldly sorrow, but would, so was Peter, right? You're all going to deny me. I'll never deny you. Peter denied him three times and looked at Jesus when he denied him and the cock crowed. And Jesus looked at Peter and Peter was broken with sorrow, but not worldly sorrow, with godly sorrow. And it caused Jesus to walk, caused Peter to walk closer to Jesus. When Jesus, when he's out there fishing because Jesus is dead and he's gone back to his boats and he sees some guy over there, telling us to cast on the other side of the net, on the other side of the boat again. He's like, oh, no, it's not him. You've got to be kidding me. And he's over there, and you need to cast out. He doesn't even wait for the fish to get in the boat. He takes off his tunic. He dives in the water and swims to the shore. That's godly sorrow leading to repentance. I'm sorry I denied you three times. I'm sorry I did exactly what you said I was going to do, and I told you I wouldn't do it, but then I did it. He didn't let worldly sorrow lead him to hang himself like Judas. He had godly sorrow and it brought him closer to Christ. And he jumps on and he gets to the shore and he doesn't even know what to say to Jesus as they're cooking fish. And he begins to ask Peter the three questions, trying to bring him in closer. Do you love me more than these, Peter? He says, you know that I do. Feed my sheep. Do you love me more than these, Peter? Yes, of course I do. And take care of my lambs, tend my lambs. Do you love me, Peter? And he was grieved that Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? Why? He was grieved with godly sorrow. 
I denied you three times and you just gave it all back to me with one sitting. I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. I gave you another chance to accept me and you did. I gave you another chance to accept me and you did. I gave you another chance to accept me and you did. One, two, three, wiped out, wiped clean. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Beautiful. Worldly sorrow causes Judas to go back to the Pharisees and throw the money, causes him to go out to a deserted place and to hang himself. That's what worldly sorrow does. It's important to let whatever we hear in God's word bring us to that godly sorrow. Don't let pride keep you from that repentance and bring you to that place of a worldly sorrow which produces death. Some of you are like, I, I've got a friend who committed suicide. And I think that's awfully harsh. I got people in this room that are thinking about it right now tonight or have in this last week. And I'm sorry about your friend, but we're trying to prevent something tonight. You see, we've got to talk like that. We've got to be bold in our speech. And it's not to bring up condemnation. It's to bring in conviction and change. Paul goes on. Verse 11, for observe this very thing, that you're, you sorrowed in a godly manner, colon. And here's what it looked like is what the colon means. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourself, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. I wrote you a letter that was going to do one of two things, godly sorrow or worldly sorrow, and it brought godly sorrow. And this is what Titus told me about. He says, you guys were diligent. He said, you were clearing yourselves. You were in, in, oh, mad at my sin. Fear, desire, zeal. Let me read these things to you. Let me go through. Diligence. It's just persistent. I'm going to persistently, back to verse 1, clear myself of spiritual grossness, and fleshly grossness. I'm not going to be that filthy person anymore. I'm going to be diligent. I'm going to be persistent in these things. And you do have to be persistent. I wish it was a one-stop cleaning, you know. I don't know how many times I wash my truck. I get tired of it. It's a big truck. It takes a long time, you know. And it takes a lot of money. Even when I do the hand, because nobody can take the dualies, you ruin your truck. So I'm there doing this hand thing before it's showing, because you can't show up with cow manure all over your truck, you know. So you're washing this thing, and you try to avoid the dirt roads on the way to the showing, right? <laughs> so you don't have the tailgate doesn't get all dusty, you know? You try to do that. That's oh, my walk with Jesus. <laughs> it's constant. Like, where that does come from? Jenny walked out one time, and she, I don't know why I keep bringing you in the teaching tonight. Welcome. <laughs> she goes, man, your chuck looks so shiny. I said, oh, it's filthy. It's terrible. I can't even go. That's terrible. She's like, you should see mine. It's my walk with the Lord. You've got to be diligent. You've got to be persistent. I'm not going to let this thing slide. I'm not going to let it fester. I'm not going to let it build. I'm not going to pile on top of it. I'm not going to sweep it under the rug. I'm dealing with it right now. Diligence. Clearing of yourself. They're trying to clear themselves of it. Rid themselves of that. I don't want to walk around with the guilt all day long of the thing I said to my wife. I'm not going another minute without calling her and getting it right with her so I can ask for forgiveness and change and be told her I'm sorry, I was wrong, and this is what happened so that we can be restored. I don't want to be so prideful that I live the next eight hours until I get home 
in this guilt and shame and she's miserable and I'm miserable. No, get it right. And that could be anybody. Clearing yourself of these things. Get it right. Bring it out in the open. Indignation about sin. God hates sin. I hate sin. I don't hate sinners because he doesn't hate sinners. He does. He says so in the Old Testament. It's kind of not what he means. He loves people, but he hates what's ruining them. And sometimes what's ruining them becomes them, identified by that. So that's what he means there. But that being said, if God hates something in my life, I hate it too. He's the sweetest, most gentle, most beautiful God that I've ever heard of, read about. Most gracious, merciful, loving person I've ever encountered. I could never be upset with him for not liking something because he's perfect. And so when he doesn't like something, I don't like it either. Paul says, when I wrote to you that this is not pleasing to God, you, were in, you had indignation towards it as well. You dealt with it. Wonderful. We're called to hate sin. Fear, I think knowing that God sees all, helps. There's no hiding my sin. I can hide my sin from all of you, but I can't hide it from God. And that fear of knowing that he's right there with me no matter what all the time, it is, does have a purifying effect. It does. I mean, I'm not that person. He's like waiting. I don't think God's got a hammer. He's like, do it. Just do it. I'm just waiting to crush you. I don't think he's like that. But the idea that he's there with me, everybody wants to be alone when they sin. Nobody wants it to be done in the light. They want it to be dark. They want it to be hidden. Nobody can see it. And to know that God's sitting there going, I'm here too. You ruined it. You ruined my sin time. Fear, desire. He says, you guys had desire. You wanted to be godly. You wanted to be holy because God's holy. You wanted to be like him. That desire is so important. Just wanting a different life. Who wants to come to the cross, be forgiven for all the sins you've ever committed and say, thank you, I'm going to go back into them now and try to live, to live what? The same life you've always lived. So you can't go back to it. You, get re- you come to get forgiveness to repent and leave it. You can't go back to it. That desire. And then zeal. You've got to be zealous. I, I wrote down here, acting with disregard for comfort. That was the best definition I could come up with for zeal. I had other things, but they didn't quite fit. But that's about what it, that's how it, when I try to deal with sin in my life, I'm zealous towards it, even if it makes me uncomfortable. No, no, no. Why can't you do that? Everybody else can do that, my flesh says. Because I can't. Zeal. You're crazy. Maybe, you know. But it's my craziness. I own it. And it's, it's, it's wonderful. I like my craziness towards God. I love my zeal towards Jesus. I do. Not everybody else does. But that's between me and my God. And then Vindication. I want Paul, when he talks about me, the Corinthian church should say, or is saying, when he boasts about how, how we received his word and how we're changed and how we're just different people and just, oh, you, you've got to see him. I want to be worthy of that reputation. You know? I want to be vindicated. I want when they show up to say, oh, Paul was right. This is a great church. Not have them walk in and say, ooh. I mean, I was told it was a great church, but that's not what I'm seeing. You know? Vindication. 
In all things, you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. That's a, and Paul says, that's the best way I can show and express my love to you was to talk about it and not ignore it. See, if I'm a casual acquaintance with somebody in Maryville, I don't talk to them about certain things. There are limits. There are boundaries we personally have. I don't walk into some place and say, you know, I'm trying to think of an example. I run into a lot of people. Sometimes I go to the courthouse and I have to talk to uh, Rex, you know, uh, you know, county assessor. You know, I don't say, hey, Rex, how's your spiritual walk with Jesus today? No, I'm there to get a PRC or something like that or some sort of other document. There's just, we're cordial. Hey, how are you, Rex? You're a great guy. I'm just so thankful for you and all that. This is wonderful. But we don't go beyond, you know, certain things. Paul's like, I don't have that relationship with you, Corinth. We're not, we're not there, you know. We're deep, you know. We're close. I'm the closest person you have to a spiritual father in this world, so I'm going to talk to you about some serious spiritual problems that you have, you know. That's the kind of relationship he has. I didn't do this because I was mad at him who did it or upset about the victimization of somebody else. It was about I wanted you to know how much I loved you. I cared for you, that we're that close that I can talk to you about this personal of a matter. That's the idea. Basically, what Paul's saying here is godly sorrow produces a change in a person. Worldly sorrow doesn't. Godly repentance, people change. Worldly embarrassment or being caught doesn't. Doesn't change a person. And Paul's saying, you were changed, you're different, and I'm glad for it. Verse 13, therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. I mean, they were down and out, and they weren't looking to get out of the down and out. They were so excited to see Titus and the fact that he saw you and the fact that you were overjoyed and that you received our letter with gladness. That just boosted everybody at the same time. We're totally happy. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I'm not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Titus judged, the, he's carrying the letter, or at least going to find out about how they received the letter. So all Titus knew about the Corinthian church was what Paul wrote about him. His first experience, what caused him to have such affection for the Corinthian church was the fact that they were that, but now they're this. The fact that they changed. Titus says, I've never seen a group of people so amazing to be so changed by your letter. That was amazing. And he says, I just, see, I love, and I think we all do, we love humble people. Humble people that admit their sin and just say, I can't believe it. And and show true repentance. I don't care about the sin. It doesn't matter what it is. But that humbleness, that beauty, it's like, oh, we are kindred because I'm a wicked sinner too, you know? And you can talk about things and you just feel that. Titus is like, these guys are great. 
I have such affection for them. Therefore, Paul says, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. That's what he says to like the Ephesians and the Philippians and people like that. You know, confidence in you. In the Corinthian church, you have confidence in them. That's how he leaves it here. There's more things to work on. There's more things to talk about, Paul says. But the very fact that you're repentant, that you're humble, that you're changed already, this is good news, he says. I want a genuine church. I want to be a part of a real church. Too much fake out there. I'm not calling out anybody. I'm just saying there's just too much of it. There's too much, too many masks, too many facades. Um, I wrote two things down. The fake satisfies until the genuine appears. I think that's true. I think that we can be satisfied with fake Christianity until we encounter real Christianity. And then it's like, oh, nothing's better than this. There's nothing better than this. Don't let the substitution satiate your desire for fulfillment. See, I want more from God. I want everything. I don't want to be whitewashed. I don't want to look pretty on the outside and unchanged on the inside. I want to start on the inside. I want to work there. You know, I want to be different. And Paul sees that happening in the Corinthian church. And I know that happens here. And I'm glad for us. I'm glad. And I hope it always stays that way. You know? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for we thank you for this Corinthian church. We give them a hard time, Lord. We read about some of the things that they were involved with, and it's hard not to compare and say, well, we're nothing like them. But actually, we, we really want to be like them. And the fact that they were open to hearing about their sin and to be changed by you and to repent and to cleanse themselves. So God, we want to do the same thing. We want to be those same people. We don't want to have the filthiness of the flesh, which is obvious, things of the world that we used to do and shouldn't do, maybe dabble in once in a while still, but shouldn't. We also want to get rid of that filthiness of the spirit that can happen to born-again believers after, years after they've been saved and set free from most of the filthiness of the flesh. But that filthiness of spirit can creep in and be just as harsh and ugly. Scott, we, we repent of that tonight too. We want to be brought to godly sorrow where that changes us. Not worldly sorrow, not that we got caught, but a godly sorrow. Lord, for those tonight that need to surrender their life to you, they need to start this work with you. They need to come to the foot of the cross. They need to ask for forgiveness of sins to receive that grace and mercy that you have for them, to confess their moral shortcomings, the sins in their lives to you. To say out loud that they're wrong and that they want to turn from those, Lord, we, we pray that now. God, forgive us for our sins. We confess them to you, whatever they may be. We ask you to cleanse us from them, from all the unrighteousness. We pray that you'd forgive us and save us. We want to be born again. We want to be different. We want to not only receive this forgiveness at the foot of the cross, but now to pick up our cross and follow you to walk in, the, in a godly manner, in a holy manner. So we leave this all here tonight. and We take none of it with us. And we repent. We're going to walk with you 
starting now for the rest of our lives, God. Thank you for that. We thank you for that relief, for the burden that's been lifted off of us tonight, the guilt, the shame, the distance. We feel close to you now. We thank you for that. We know that you love us, that you'll make your home in us, that you'll change us from the inside out. Help us to hear you and obey you. When you say, don't go, that we won't go. If you tell us to go, then we will go. We just want to hear your guidance and your leading to follow and to learn to remove all the filthiness of the flesh, to leave it all behind, all the filthiness of the spirit, leave that behind, and to become true, humble servants of yours, to discover what it means to be a child of God, to be like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Don't leave without it. We'd love to pray with you.